0: We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any
1: hard data? Now, that's what I call science. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering to record this episode. We recognise the ongoing contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are making to the sciences. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast from Tasmania. My name is Neve Chapman. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Meredith Castles. We are socially distanced, of course. Today, we are going to be talking about the science of mobile app making, so the types of apps that you probably use on your phone or mobile device, with our expert guest, Dr. Lindsay Wells from the University of Tasmania and the University of New South Wales. So, Meredith, could you please give us a bit more info about our guest? and our topic for
2: today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Hi Lindsay, it's good to chat to you more formally than just across the hall as we normally do. Lindsay and I are academics at UTAS in the discipline of ICT and Lindsay is a lecturer in mobile uh, mobile application development, I should say. He's also on loan to the University of New South Wales as a postdoctoral fellow. We're going to cover a few things around um, mobile apps in general but also about the study of them and some of these recent controversies such as the government's COVID app. So, Lindsay, um, in your opinion, what makes a good mobile app? What are they and what, what makes a good one?
0: So, yeah, hi, guys. How's it going? Um, yeah, in terms of uh, what makes a, a good mobile app, I think a lot of people, even regular laymen, sort of know what makes a good app. It's it's kind of common sense. People always use these terms like it's got to be intuitive or easy to use or, uh, you know, quick to, to learn how to use an app, that sort of thing. Um, so it's the kind of thing that a lot of people inherently know what a good app is when they see one, but it's more about how to create a, an app like that. So it, it's easier said than done to try and put things together and actually quantify what it means to have something be easy to use or be intuitive. And, and Meredith, you know about this because you've helped me teach this at, at UTAS, is that we've got these these ideas of usability goals, which is, as I just said, the... Um, easy to learn, easy to use sort of stuff. But then once you sort of drill down into it a bit further, there are um, principles or guidelines, lots and lots of different opinions out there about what makes uh, an app um, easy to use um, and that sort of thing. And so obviously I have my own opinions based upon how I've used apps in the past, but um, that's also sort of highlights how everyone has their own opinions of, of apps they've used in the past. And because everyone's experiences with Mobile apps are different um, we can we can use these rules and principles, but that only gets us so far. Um, really what makes a good mobile app is what I'm trying to get to here is the idea that um, we should do usability testing and try out our app with people before just throwing it out there and that's something that a lot of people fail to do fail to realize is super important
1: that's a, a really interesting summary, Lindsay, and I think that you're right that we need to consider the user and most of us would know the difference between an app that we've used that's really intuitive, we've really enjoyed it, we haven't really had to think too hard about what we need to do to engage with it, which is essentially what most of us are looking for. I don't know many people that read instructions for how to use apps, but Mm. I wonder, you know, what kind of steps are involved in that process and is it really costly? So would that be a big barrier for startups and you know, kind of at-home coders to to do this user experience testing?
0: Uh, that's an excellent point to bring up the idea of cost there. Um, uh, absolutely, uh, there is a myth out there that people think that usability testing is costly, takes a lot of time and money. And one thing that we try to hammer home at UTAS in the mobile development class that I teach is this idea of uh, discount usability testing or approaches to usability testing that um, don't take a lot of time and money, um, but still give us quite a bit of insight. Um, and it, the, where that comes from is the, the idea that our users have a lot of opinions and a lot of information that you just got to work out how to extract that from them. Um, and one of the, the tools that I like to use, or at least like to teach about, I don't get a lot of chance to apply it, is, uh, this idea of, uh, usability think aloud testing. And so this costs almost nothing, um, in terms of getting you know three or five uh, three or four people into a room using a prototype of your app so I'll take a step back and say that um, you don't even have to test on a finalized programmed app you can test on a piece of paper something that you scribble on um, on the back of a napkin even as long as you're communicating your your user interface to them um, you know you don't have to have gone all the way down the route of uh, programming your app so you get uh you know a couple of people just to, to test on a what's called a low-fi prototype prototype um and then you do something called think aloud testing which is you get them to do some tasks with the app that are you know common like uh, if it's the, the covid app you might say uh log in and create an account something like that um but you just get that person to complete those steps on the prototype and then they think aloud as they're doing it and so this uh, is a really useful way of extracting um, the user's thoughts um, and to, without diving into technical words here, their mental model, their idea of how the app uh, should work. And you then work out, OK, is this different to how you expect your users uh, or how you think about the app and how you think users think about the app? if that makes sense. So that's just one form of uh, usability testing that basically costs nothing because you don't have to have programmed anything. You spend a little bit of time with your users. Um, there's a whole heap of other different approaches out there documented online that this does not cost a lot of money.
1: That's really interesting. It's not something I'm hugely familiar with, but I've you know, i done a little bit of usability testing with consumers with my research, um, again, using an app. And it's, again, something that I've always found really rewarding because your user will often have a different view of what's important to your product than you might see yourself um and also different ways that uh They might find uses for that you didn't anticipate, or they'll see things that you hadn't necessarily considered that were really um, at the forefront. So it's really interesting and important to consider. And I
2: think you're absolutely right that it should be at the fore of whatever we're currently doing. Absolutely. And you did touch on something a little interesting we we want to delve into a tiny bit now, which is the COVID app. You've been quoted in the Mercury and the Examiner talking about uh, some of the controversy around this and some of the causes of the controversy around this app. Do you want to just go into a little bit, just obviously for maybe some? people who are living under a rock might not have heard about the controversy and um, anything you can tell us that you might have not told the mercury in the examiner.
0: Sure. So the COVID app uh, for anyone who is living under a rock is an app that uh, utilizes the Bluetooth on your phone to to assist with uh, contact tracing, which is a a hugely important aspect of trying to to fight uh, the coronavirus. Um, And so the disclaimer I'll give here is that I absolutely have installed the app and uh i the the quotes that have been used from me in the in the newspapers have suggested that um you know, well i've suggested that there's nothing wrong with the app in in principle uh and that people absolutely should be getting out there and um downloading it and using it um there have been some concerns out there um and so i think the the newspapers actually kind of wanted maybe a an unpopular opinion from me or a, you know a hot take of some kind to say oh don't download this app there's it's terribly broken, um, but that's certainly not the case. And I'll, I'll repeat that That basically here is that um, it, it's overall safe to use. The, the data that it collects is um, minimal at best. And um, what they've done, um, so the way that it works, just briefly, is that it, it transfers what's called a little temporary identifiers between uh, phones using Bluetooth when it detects that you're near someone. Um, and those temporary identifiers, if seen by someone other than the government basically mean nothing. Um, so those, you know, that's, that's the extent of the information that's transferred between phones um, until such time as someone um, is found to have COVID and then you can get contacted. But um, what happened is that people, they, they didn't release the source code for the COVID app and that caused some concerns uh, in the wider community and the tech community. Um but that has now since been released, and people can see that um but what happened was that people decompiled the app and had a look to see you know what uh with which is the technical term for pulling it apart and reverse engineering it to work out uh how the app works and in general the app does well the app absolutely does everything that the the government says it does, so they're not um they're not hiding in any extra location tracking data or anything like that, so people were concerned that um when when you use the word tracking. Um, people were concerned that we were tracking people's locations and stuff. There are a couple of uh, minor bugs in the the app that could allow for temporary tracking of people um, with a little bit of effort involved. Um, and by that I mean, you know, tracking them for maybe fifteen minutes to two hours. Um, Though some of those bugs have since been, been fixed. Um, and so something I just wanted to to talk about was that yeah they've released the the source code of this app they've uh, quote unquote uh, open sourced it um, but Meredith you you would know a lot about this idea of open sourcing software um, that they've released the code but um, true open source software allows other developers to contribute right contribute in a, a secure way so basically using um, experts across the entire world to, to go in and fix bugs themselves and then say, hey, do you want to accept this code change? Um, the government hasn't allowed any of that um, and they're being a little bit slow on the uptake to um, to fixing any bugs that developers have found, which is a concern.
1: So what do you think drives that concern, that hesitance from the government to, one, have provided the source code in the first place, but then, two, to engage with um, this open source approach? So it's an
0: excellent question uh, and there absolutely should be, even in, in regular open source development, there there are checks and balances that you can't just, um, you know, submit code blindly and have it uh, sent up there. There is a a code review process, but code review process is uh, still done by humans uh, or has a human element in it. Um, there are automated checks that determine exactly what changes to the code have been done. So uh where any programmer worth their salts will be able to understand the the, the changes. They can see exactly the changes that have made, but uh the human element is trying to understand what those changes mean and yeah is there a Trojan you know virus or something thrown in there. So uh I totally understand that there should be hesitance to um allow people to uh submit code to, to fix this, but um and, and there's, there's been some research done online explaining um, some of the, the bugs that are particularly bad uh, in the, the COVID app. Um, I'm not fully across all of them. There's a lot of technical details in there, but um, the, the government have been slow uh, at fixing some of those bugs. Other bugs have been fixed. I can't you know, speak to as to why that's the case, other than that with any kind of government software, um, things move slowly. Um is, is just the way it, it tends
1: to work. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And, you know, just while we're on the topic, I would like to pick your brain a bit further. So one thing that I found fascinating about the app, and I actually haven't downloaded it yet, but I will today. I, that's my promise. Um, so uh It's used for contact tracing, and that's why it sends these Bluetooth signals. And essentially, with um, risk of infection, you need to be within a certain distance to somebody for a certain amount of time. So the closer you are to somebody for the longer amount of time, the greater chance there is that they will transmit... The disease to you and that's probably because of the amount of air that they're expirating or breathing out and all of that kind of thing so essentially that's what they're trying to gauge from this bluetooth transmission of data but even if you get infected and you test positive you then the government has to get your explicit permission to upload for you to upload that data for it to become part of the the contact tracing Cool. And, and I wondered what your thoughts are of that compared to the privacy that we willingly rescind or give out when we use other apps.
0: Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. And I, it's why when I'm looking at the discourse about this online, I'm very disappointed really in in everyone that's saying, oh, I don't want to submit my information. I don't want to download the app, that sort of thing. When they're posting those exact comments that say this on Facebook, you know, it's, there There's other apps out there that track much much more information um this The government's gone out of their way here with this code to ensure that yes you you have to consent to to any uploaded information uh so that does become a decision um but it is limited information compared to the sort of stuff that's that's up on facebook um and i I guess it just comes down to um the users and what they decide to do um to and that will be what ultimately decides how useful this app is. Um I've already uh forgotten to take my phone with me to the dog park the other day. Um, after downloading the app I was like, yep, this is great. And it was probably the most uh populated place that I'd been to was the dog park and I'd forgotten to take my damn phone there. Um, you know, there's gonna be lots of problems like that. There's gonna be, you know, the people who are gonna be flaunting the or flouting the um the social distancing rules are probably also the same sort of people who are not downloading the app as well. I don't know what um, percentage of people they've hit with this, but they they were talking about 40%. I think that number's too low anyway. I mean, not based on anything other than a gut feeling. But, um yeah, the definitely while the app will function well um, and can work out using signal strength how close you are to another person, I'm not sure how effective the app will prove to be
1: yeah I think it's an interesting point just for our listeners, like ask themselves, well, what other types of privacy things have I been happy to forego so that I can send instant messages?" via an app that's convenient for my choice so that my friends tends to tend to use anyway so we've gone off on a bit of a tangent there after Meredith was like one quick question i'm like no several follow-up questions this is so interesting so you're listening to that's what i call science come and join us in just a moment while we delve into dr Lindsay well's work a little bit more
2: You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we're talking about tech, technology and specifically mobile apps. My name is Meredith Castles and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest Doctor Lindsay Wells from the University of Tasmania and the University of New South Wales. Just before the break we began to talk a little bit about the recent controversy around the COVID app, as well as what makes a good app, (laughs) a good mobile app these days. So Just delving a little bit more into your work, Lindy, um, can you just tell us a little bit about what you're doing research-wise and work-wise now?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is going to go on a bit of a tangent away from mobile apps just at the moment. Um, Obviously, I teach mobile development at UTAS, but um, when it comes to any academic in a university, they have a a teaching portfolio and a research portfolio. Um, Mine are quite disjoint at the moment. So while I teach mobile apps, my research area is in... Um, broadly in serious games, but also um, my current research through U- University of New South Wales is artificial intelligence. Um, and then on the other side, I'm also looking at um, serious games um, and that sort of thing, video game uh, development. Yeah.
1: What is a serious game?
0: Fantastic question. Thank you for asking. So the idea uh, of serious games is games for non-entertainment purposes. So we're all used to playing games that are for... Uh, for fun and frivolous purposes and just for enjoying ourselves but serious games are are games that um, are for a non-entertainment purpose that are trying to generally do good in the world, trying to bring about some kind of change perhaps um, by leveraging game mechanics. So there's two broad ways of um, talking about um, how video games can be used for serious purposes and you'll be able to tell in a moment which one I really like and which one I hate with a passion. Um, one way is called gamification, um, and this is something that a lot of people will have experienced in their lives so if you 've used a loyalty card um, that 's a form of gamification collecting um, little stickers uh, to to get some kind of reward at the end or if you're uh, you know a boy or girl scouts uh, collecting badges for doing things um, that 's gamification. Um, and so those simple mechanics of, you know, points, loyalty, badges, leaderboards, that sort of thing is called gamification, which is just taking elements of games and using that to incentivize you to do something good, like use less energy in the real world, uh, sorry, use less electricity, I should say, um, or smoke less or not at all, uh, that sort of thing, or just eat healthy you know, and get rewarded using these game mechanics. Um you can get those same sort of effects with a slightly different approach, which is serious games, which is where we take whole games proper, right, and base them around some kind of topic like um, smoking less and that sort of thing. And so if you do less of that behaviour, like smoking less or using um, less electricity, then you get rewarded in the game. And if you are inherently interested in the game, then... um hopefully that sort of ties into your psychology of wanting to quit smoking or use less energy. Um, and so that's the area that I'm interested in is rather than just using little bits of games um, and embedding it into places where they don't really belong, like on Facebook or, you know, in our wallets with the loyalty card, instead embedding it into mobile technologies, game technologies and that sort of thing. Serious games also, just aside, can be used for more than just uh, incentivizing behaviour. They can be used in a scientific form. There's even a serious game out right now, uh, or there's been a game going on for a long time, which uh, is for folding proteins called fold Foldit. Um, I don't know much about that game, but it's recently been used to try and help with coronavirus. So people are um, playing this game and folding proteins, whatever that means. I don't really understand what that means from a science point of view. But somehow humans doing this en masse uh, is helpful towards understanding Uh, What makes up coronavirus?
2: That actually ties in quite nicely with um, some things on citizen science and that sort of thing, the the utilisation of um, non experts to be able to um, solve scientific or contribute to solving scientific issues. Does any of your work actually tie in with where you've got citizen science and uh, serious game development?
0: Absolutely, you're right. There is that um, citizen science sort of thing, which is probably much more interesting, but I don't know much about where the game helps. Uh, or someone plays a game and it helps everyone rather than the game helping themselves. Yeah, the uh, work that I've been doing, or the the work in serious games that I've been doing, was on um, energy conservation, um, and that's why I used that as an example before. My PhD work was um, basically uh, a mobile game which read your electricity usage from. Uh, your smart meter so this only worked for people who have a smart meter in their home smart electricity meter um, and we tested it on some people who uh, had these smart meters installed in their house um, and if they used less electricity they got rewarded in the game by um, basically unlocking rewards and changing the weather in the game and allowing them to uh, progress further in this little story that, that i would made in the game.
1: Is your area of interest more so looking at can a game result in a behaviour change that is beneficial and then we could work on the how could we get mass uptake or is it to look at whether or not people would actually use this to change behaviour?
0: You're right, that is a, a very uh, tricky question and, and that's, that's at the core <laughs> of our work of um, what we're looking at and uh, what is causing us the most problems. So when I first started young and naive in the PhD it was that, yeah can we just get to some kind of effect from this game? You know, the average age of a gamer is like I, I don't know, it's up to 35, I think, or something like that. So so games are generally accepted. There's lots of people who are not interested in games um, or even just interested in using mobile technology. So we we tried to give it the best shot in terms of making the game work on a mobile phone, be something that you can play for little fractions at a time. And so one of the models, psychological models that we use for this is um, uh, it, it talks about person's capability, opportunity, and motivation to change their uh, behavior, and you can examine this by, um, you know, looking at literature or talking to the people. So again, involving the users in the design, um, or it, just interviewing users before you make your your three-year project and, and fail. Um, but what we want to try and do more recently now is apply that that model, capability, opportunity, motivation, to whether or not people have the capability, opportunity, and motivation to play a game play a
1: serious game so I also have like a kind of philosophical question for the both of you it seems that both of you are really interested in the psychology and the behavior and the user behind that which is kind of like probably not something somebody would consider as an outsider to tech is actually really integral to how we make technology and how we use technology but because technology is so embedded in every single fabric of what we do every day it's really hard to unpack that so I wonder you know do you have anything to to say to that point that the person can't really be removed from technology or how we consider those softer sciences of psychology and behavioral science within tech, which, you know, maybe some people who are young are listening to this being like, I want to go to university. And I want to code apps, but I don't want to ever talk to people because they're not what I need to interact with. So maybe if we start with Meredith first.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, it, Well, It might surprise a lot of people that, um, well, it might not surprise a lot of people that tech um, research delves into this quite deeply. um, Still, still looking at um, you know the the effects of this simply because we don't do it very well (laughs) at all. No field really does. So um, the fact that user centered, there's there's a lot of keywords thrown around like user centered design, HCI, that sort of thing, human computer interaction. it's been around for a very, very long time, and it will, at this point, be a fair, a fair amount of time into the future, simply because we need to um, push that, that user-centered design in tech, um, because it is the most forgotten part um, of the tech design. And What do you reckon, Lizzie?
0: I 100% agree with you there, not only because I've taught the HCI unit, Human Computer Interaction Unit, with you, Meredith, but... Um, that you, you made a good point that we don't do it particularly well. Technologists don't do this particularly well. Um, and so this is something that we're trying to, to change, at least within our personal research group, the Games Re- Games and Creative Technologies Research Group at UTAS, um, has been collaborating with the School of Psychology at UTAS as well. And so we've got some pretty strong connections there now, um, with Professor Jen Scott, uh, to name one person there. Um, and so, what is really interesting is we've got these terms of HCI, user-centred designs, and then you go to the psychologists there and they have no idea what those really are, So depending on who you talk to. They've got their own terms for these things. And so there ultimately becomes this big knowledge gap in between that we, or gap and also overlap that we know a little bit about each other's fields, but the mesh in between is, is all fuzzy and we're not using the same terminology and there's a lot of work to be done um with technologists and psychologists to uh to try and bridge that gap. Uh and we're we're working on that. And I think that um where this probably needs to start is um when we're educating new psychologists. So at the moment um I don't think there is I don't even know if there's a single unit on app design or certainly not app design, but the impact of apps in psychology. And that's something that um Professor Scott wants to to look into with us. Um, she used to be head of school there, but uh, that's a that's a thing to be done into the future is to try and bring people from technology into the psychology uh, education space and teach them about human centered design at, at least, and um, uh, that would be uh, a good way forward, I think. Yes.
1: Yeah. yeah, and I think on that note, we'll probably call it a wrap. But I think we could talk about how to place the user at the center of the design process for technology um, all day probably the three of us you've been listening to that's what i call science we hope you enjoyed the show and uh, if you did or you have any questions you can get in touch with us on that's what i call science or that's science tas facebook instagram and twitter my name is neve chapman i'd like to thank my co-host meredith castles for all of her work for this episode and our expert guest dr Lindsay wells both from the university of tasmania but Lindsay is also from the university of new south wales thanks folks